The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. This Guardian Podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com slash guardian. As the season of literary log rolling draws to its close, we take a satirical look at five of the big books of the year with The Guardian's John Crace and try to digest what they reveal about the state we're in at the end of 2015. Today's digested read is The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, which was one of the big publishing events of the new year. Not only was it the booker-winning author's first novel since 2005's Never Let Me Go, but it reignited the genre wars with no less a person than Ursula Le Guin, accusing Ishiguro of patronising the great tradition of fantasy writing with a tale that takes in dragons and knights in a mythical story of an old couple who set off on a quest through the mists of time. The Buried Giant by Katsuo Ishiguro digested. John Crace lifts the mist on Ishiguro's latest novel to uncover a less epic, 700-word version of his Tolkien-esque tale. You would have searched high and low for the green and pleasant pasture the country would one day become, but in the years after the Romans left, the land was desolate and full of ogres. I do not want to give the impression there were no castles or fine dining experiences to be had, but most of the people therein lived miserable lives underground. Let us now turn to Axel and Beatrice, an elderly couple of Britons, whom we first catch sight of waking up in their subterranean hovel. Ye do not look well, princess, Axel said. Oh, I mustn't grumble, Beatrice replied. A deep growl rent the air, and Beatrice shivered. Don't worry about him, princess, said Axel, for in truth... He always called her thus. That's just Oliver, the not-very-scary ogre. Now where was I? I forget. Me too. That's the trouble with this mist sent to us by Queerig, the queer she-dragon, princess. It makes us forget everything. Does it? How would you know? I seem to remember, though, Princess, that we might once have had a son. I'll take your word for it. Shall we go look for him? Verily, it was thus that Beatrice and Axel set out on their awfully big adventure, even though they knowest not where they were going or what they were doing due to the mist that descended on them. Ere long, they chanced upon Brian the boatman, who took them across the river after an interlude in which nothing very eventful occurred. At nightfall, they arrived at a Saxon village. "'You still don't look very well, Princess,' said Axel. "'But at least the mist is lifting, and I am beginning to remember that I might have forgotten something.' "'Thou hast certainly forgotten how to write dialogue,' Beatrice said. Just then, another hideous shriek rent the night sky— and the elderly couple cowered in the corner of their circular abode. A large young man appeared before them, 
I am Whiston the warrior, he said, and you must leave now with me and this young boy, Edwin the Egypt, who has been bitten by an ogre. The silly Saxons think Edwin the Egypt must surely become an ogre too. Under the cover of deepest fenland, the four slipped away and made good progress through the mist until they came across an elderly knight. Who goes there? said Sir Gawain, for it was he. Booger me, Axel replied. Didn't you once sleep with my princess when I was off killing someone? I can't remember, Sir Gawain said. Me neither, Beatrice added. This mist is quite convenient after all. They pondered these things deep in their hearts until they arrived at the monastery of Father Jonas. Can you cure Beatrice? Axel asked. Father Jonas shrugged. No one can, but I can make sure you are all hacked to death. Oh, fie, said Beatrice, after she and Axel had fallen down a well and then had escaped. We must beware of Oscar, the quite scary ogre. Edwin the Egypt was bemused to find that he was left in charge of the narrative for a chapter and, quite wisely, used the time to reveal nothing. By chance, the five of them all met up again somewhere very muddy. This time, Sir Gawain was with Horace the horse. "'Are you enjoying this?' asked Axel. "'Nay, nay, and thrice nay!' neighed Horace. Sir Gawain and Whiston the warrior decided they should engage in mortal combat. With one blow, Sir Gawain fell. "'You know what, Axel?' he whispered, as he lay dying. "'I think I did shag your wife. "'This remembering lark isn't all it's cracked up to be.' Axel was coming to much the same conclusion. As they reached the higher ground, the mist was receding, and he was having nasty flashbacks about massacring children. "'All the same!' roared Whiston the warrior. Now we've got here, I might as well kill Quirig the queer she-dragon. Alas, princess, Axel sobbed. Woe is me, I can remember everything. Me too. I'd give anything to be able to forget the last 350 pages. The digested read, digested. Look who's talking. That was Richard Lee reading John Crace's digested read of The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. I'm joined now in the studio by Guardian critic Alex Clark and the Observer critic Robert McCrum. Alex, you've been a bit of a cheerleader for this novel. Yeah, I really, really liked it. And I don't understand the the issue about fantasy. I mean, you, you either say that everybody is free to write everything in every register and style that they want, or you don't. And I think it was incredibly interesting and wrong-footing of Ishiguro to take this move. And he talked about it very interestingly. I interviewed him at some length for The Guardian back when the book came out. And he was 
very, very interesting about what had driven him to choose this completely other setting, its particular hallmarks, its features, um, but also the idea of just writing in this other place so as to be able to address timeless themes of memory and forgetting societal um, progress, how, you, how a society holds the memories of its painful past. What do we know about this setting? We know it's, it's in a sort of Britain, ancient Britain, there are Roman ruins, but there are also mythical creatures roaming around. Yes, it's kind of deliberately sort of mashed up. I mean, you couldn't exactly uh, locate it in a, in a precise historical period. There are kind of bits and pieces that don't quite make sense, and that's deliberate. But it is essentially the story of a group of people um, who are in the aftermath of an invasion by another group of people and who have faced kind of displacement, who are marginalised, who have been ostracised from society and their travels to try and find, uh, in this case, Beatrice and Axel are trying to find their son in another village, but they face dangers all the time. Robert, how well do you think this book has stood up to the hype around it? Well, it's an extraordinary book. Um, And I think it's very typical Ishiguro, really, because it's a quest. Many of his books have quests. And it's also, for him, very personal, because I think it's him addressing and engaging with English history. Hina, he was a Japanese child who came here five years after Hiroshima. And all his books, in one way or another, or most of them, are a kind of examination of what it is to be here in England as a Japanese boy. And this is a quest into the mystery of English prehistory, a time, as Alex just said, of intense series of invasions, great mystery, many, many, many myths. These aren't to a dozen myths. These are the myths of Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, Gawain. These are big myths, and he's engaging with those. Now, you can question how well he does them and how enthusiastically he does that, but there's no doubt that in his mind he's really grappling with some very important stuff in our tradition. I think I think one of the difficult areas which we might talk about is dialogue. I think it's very hard to imagine what an 8th century or ninth century or whatever it is. We're not quite clear, are we? No, no, um, it's sort of deliberately blurred, mm-hmm. isn't it? But how do they talk? And Gildy has the same problem in, in, the, in The Inheritors. T.H. White doesn't have the problem because he pretends they're talking like somebody in the 1930s, but um, it is an issue. Yes, and he does. I mean, I, I can't. I can't uh, pretend I didn't also get tripped up by that on occasion because a lot of the dialogue is between Beatrice and Axel, and the fact that Axel always refers to his wife as princess, doesn't he? Mm. Throughout, mm. I mean, trips you up, makes you think you're in a sort of fairy story, which I think is something that deliberately he's is playing, there. He's, he's playing, playing with it. Yes, now going back to the beginning. I don't think he, he's writing another novel. As far as he, I mean, all Ishiguro's novels—they're all different, one yeah. from the other. And now that's the great thing about him. And I think the remarkable thing is that he sort of brought this one off too. Yes, um, and, the, and you, after you're a long right. struggle. And they are all in their own way. They take a different thing. I mean, the Country House novel, most famously in Remains of the Day, but you know, the the Golden Age of Detectives in When mm. We Were Orphans, which is my uh, favourite of all Ishiguro, has that sort of sense of a quest, but a quest that we don't really understand. What is it for? And it doesn't we, quite work technically and traditionally, yes, but nonetheless, yes. it works on the you know, as the reader. You do, you, it does work. Well, one of the things he's brilliant at, and I think he does in this book and does really, really pull it off, is that. 
that sense of jeopardy. He manages jeopardy. Mm. He puts mm. people in these strange circumstances that the reader doesn't fully understand. Um, obviously, Never Let Me Go is, an, is another example, but it's there in all the books, actually. You don't really know what this person or set of people are frightened of, but you know there is something. There's an aura of menace, and there's something that they must do but they're never going to quite be able to. It's a sort of dreamscape in a mm. way, isn't it? I think that idea of the dream is really, really here. The idea in this book of the mist of forgetting, really powerful. And the reader is sort of, he invites the reader to get lost in this, which I think is true of great novels, do invite the reader to sort of lose yourself in something, which is not really, it's both fact and fiction, is real and unreal. You don't quite know where you stand in relation to the material, but you are in this dream. Bringing you back to the idea of the dialogue, there is a flatness about the way this is written. And I know that's an accusation that's been made of Ishiguru in the past. Mm. But actually, this book is, is sort of almost willfully flat, isn't it? I think it? deliberately. I think, I think he bleached it out. In order, in order to make it work, he just turned it, he just took it right down. But that's not going to win him loads of new readers, is it, in our, in our sort it's of I mean, colour-drenched I, era? I've made this point to, you know, 18-year-olds I've come across. My daughter is, is a fan. Um, of this particular yes, book, she, she loved it, um, and and her friends. I had this conversation only the other day with a bunch of them, saying, "How do they find it?" And they 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 were delighted by it. Well, there is a kind of, I guess, an idea that perhaps where we're all sat there going, "My goodness, it's a book with dragons," and um, the young don't really can't get do wrong that. With a <laughs> can't get wrong with a dragon. <laughs> You know, there are also a lot of our popular culture is saturated in this kind of um, sort of fantasy iconography, I suppose. And we're not actually, you know, nobody's that faced by it. In um, Never Let Me Go, he took on the tropes of, of science fiction. And mm. this one, he's gone into fantasy. I mean, I, it's quite intriguing, really, isn't it, that he should take on, you know, these two so such popular genres, but also popular with a readership that is not Ishiguru's readership. I just don't think he really cares about that. No, is that, no. is that I th- a fair I think, thing I think to that's say? Fair, yes. And I also think if he was going to be taking on science fiction and, in this case, fantasy, he could have done a lot more. I mean, in some ways, it's quite disappointing from the point of view of the dragon lover, mm. isn't it? Yes, there's not enough dragons. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> People are sending it back saying, just not enough dragons. <laughs> uh, but I just don't think that he is really an audience pleaser in that way. I just don't think it's how he sees himself as a writer. And it's, you know, obviously, I think it's what makes him all the more powerful mm. a writer. But I don't think he sits there thinking, what can I really put in this? It's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the book that demands the story. And we, and we know that he worked on this for 10 years. Mm. And gave a lot t- of it up, didn't he? Yeah, and threw it away and, and mm. struggled with it, that, which is a tremendous commitment of, of creative energy, I think. So, mm. I'd, so I think one salutes that. Well, thank you to both of you. And The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro is published by Faber. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com slash guardian. The Guardian has always been a community of readers, journalists and contributors. And now our live events are bringing these people together. The Guardian events are the Guardian at its best, which is a two-way conversation involving the reader and having a real, genuine, thriving debate. Could be anything from food and culture, arts, to politics, to foreign affairs. To see what events are coming up and to check out the benefits of membership, go to members.theguardian.com. 
Also, subscribe to The Guardian Live podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud and other reputable audio platforms. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.